welcome to the Sweat Elite Podcast. This is Matt, your host. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Today, our guest is Brett Lana, who manages the website Japan Running News, that is the world's window into elite Japanese distance running since 2007. Brett moved to Japan in 1997 as a keen runner, got amongst the running community in Japan, and a decade later started Japan Running News, where he keeps his finger on the pulse of the Japanese running scene for the English-speaking audience. My colleague, Tate Herbs, and I recently travelled to Japan to try to better understand the elite Japanese running scene. We learned last year that there were over 100 Japanese runners that had run 210 for the marathon in history. Compare that with the USA, with a population of nearly triple that of Japan and a massive infrastructure surrounding their collegiate athletic system that have had only 20 athletes that have run under 210 for the marathon. We ended up spending almost three weeks in Japan. Unfortunately, our trip was cut short a little bit due to the progressive coronavirus situation, but we were fortunate enough to be connected with several elite athletes, coaches, and people in the media. For example, Brett Lana, who we interview in this podcast episode. Post-trip, Tate has published several articles on the Sweat Elite website, summarizing everything that we learned on our trip in Japan and highlighting all of the factors that contribute to the astonishing depth at the elite and sub-elite level in Japanese running. You can check those articles out. You can find the links to them in the show notes of this podcast episode, or you can head over to our website, subscribe, head over to the articles section and find the marathon category. And we suggest starting at the article titled The Perplexing Depth of Talent in Japanese Running. Tate also conducts this interview with Brett Lana. We didn't actually meet Brett in Japan. We were connected with him towards the end of our trip and he wasn't in the area at the time. So we connected with him via Skype upon arriving home. Now it's been the general practice of late for us here at Sweat Elite to conduct as many interviews as possible in person. Unfortunately, the pandemic has made that impossible and we had to conduct this interview via Skype. And we do apologize for a couple of sections that are not the greatest sound quality, but you can understand more or less everything that Brett and Tate chat about throughout this interview. Huge thanks to Brett Lana from Japan Running News for taking the time out to speak with Tate on this podcast episode. Do keep in mind that this podcast episode was recorded on March 16th, about four weeks ago now, and at that point in time, the Tokyo Olympic Games had not yet been postponed. So do keep that in mind, especially towards the end when Tate asks Brett about the Tokyo Olympics and if they may go ahead this year. Brett and Tate speak all about the history of Ekaden, the reverence for long-distance road racing and where it comes from. They speak all about the corporate team structure and how there are many more opportunities for athletes coming out of university to essentially earn a full-time wage from running and, of course, quite a bit about training as well. That's about enough from me in this intro. I hope that you enjoy this podcast episode where my colleague Tate interviews Brett Lana from Japan Running News. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sweat Elite podcast. Today we have our guest Brett Lana of J Japan Running News, who is here to give us a bit of a background on running in Japan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time to have a chat today. Could you give us a rundown, Brett, as to how you ended up in Japan and what, what made you start Japanese Running News? Sure. Um, 
I first came to Japan in the summer of 1997. I came over for graduate school to do a master's degree, and it was going to be like a two or three year thing, and then that turned into four, which turned into six, and 23 years later, I'm still here. And um, I came over, the, the, my area of study was completely unrelated to running, but I had been a runner since uh, junior high school. And um, basically, as soon as I got here, I started noticing that uh, there were a lot of good runners around. You know, I'd, I got into a few races and everybody was really good. And um, when the first uh, kind of winter season came along, I noticed that almost every weekend from about uh, October through March, there were race broadcasts on TV. And that was you know, totally foreign to me. So I started watching and getting interested in things and kind of learning about the scene here, um, meeting some people. And then uh, at the time of the Osaka World Championships in 2007, uh, my wife and I were talking. Um, she's Japanese and was involved in the running publishing industry here. And we got talking about how there was basically no information online about uh, Japanese running in English. You know, nothing about um, athletes and races unless, uh, you know, a big name happened to run overseas somewhere. And uh, we just felt like there was a lot of information um, that uh, would be of interest overseas about the scene here and, uh, you know, how good people are. And so decided to start uh, Japan Running News to kind of fill that niche. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, it's a resource that we definitely used in the lead up to our trip over there. Is it currently just you that's running the website? Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically always just been me. Um, in uh, in the very early years, uh, Mika helped a bit more with um, some of the translations. But uh, kind of once I got used to doing, uh, kind of got my my methodology down. Um, it's basically just like a one person show. Um, she still helps a bit with some of the live tweeting uh, when uh, I'm not available to uh, to live tweet a race. She'll do some of that, but I basically do the rest of it. Okay. Wonderful. And you're also quite involved in the Japanese running industry, as I understand. Yeah, uh, that's most of my work um, is in the running industry here, um, kind of in a variety of uh, variety of contexts. Um, I'm a world uh, world athletics authorized athlete representative. Uh, my wife and I have a company doing some um, Japanese market promotion for uh, overseas marathons for um, trying to attract amateur Japanese runners as uh, marathon tourists and uh, do a fair amount of writing here as well, translation work, um, primarily related to, uh, to running. Uh, I've been doing more TV work the last few years as well. So um, yeah, there's a variety of different capacities, but primarily uh, involved with running. Okay, and so with, with that work marketing, as I understand, the numbers of Japanese amateur athletes competing in marathons and traveling for marathons has grown greatly in the past few years. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, the catalyst for the, the growth in amateur running in Japan was uh, definitely the creation of the Tokyo Marathon in 2007. Um, I, a few years ago now, I did an article kind of looking at the, the numbers, uh, the growth in the number of people finishing marathons uh, worldwide and uh, in Japan in particular, and the number of marathons with 10,000 plus finishers um, worldwide and in Japan. And uh, yeah, just since 2007, both of those things have uh, have grown tremendously uh, within Japan. And um, I haven't looked at the recent numbers for the last two or three years, but as of two or three years ago, uh, Japan had surpassed the United States as um, the country with the most people finishing marathons within the year and uh, close to half the number of 10,000 plus finisher marathons in the world are in Japan. So um, wow. the market has just grown tremendously over the last, what, 13 years now. Mm. 
Yeah, it's huge. And so we, we just spent some time in Japan and that trip has been cut a bit short due to the developing COVID-19 situation. Yeah. But the, the main reason we wanted to speak with you today is to hear a bit more about yeah, the running system in Japan and how it's mm-hmm. such a big part of the culture. So mm-hmm. could you tell us where do you think that the Japanese reverence for long distance road racing has come from? Uh, well, it's it's a long process. I mean, I, I think, you know, just to, to, to put it simply in terms of like what you see today in terms of, I don't know if I'd use the word reverence, but uh, the popularity of it. Mm. Um, is uh, really like the product of uh, very good marketing. Um, I think it's a very similar process to what you see in other countries where like a given sport might be popular, um, where, you know, several decades ago, uh, the sport existed and there was some level of talent there. And then once TV broadcasting started to get going and uh, the TV broadcast became more popular and more money went into that and that raised the visibility of the sport. And so young people seeing the sport on TV would say like, I want to do that. And uh, the, the sport would progress that way. And I think that's been a large part of it in Japan. Um, like I said earlier, the, the TV broadcasts, the, uh, you can see marathons, ekidens, the road relays um, on TV almost every weekend for you know almost half the year, um, five months out of the year maybe. And um, yeah, the, 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 the size audiences that those broadcasts pull in is enormous. And so it's a very popular spectator sport. And uh, yeah, again, like the visibility of it for young people, they have role models they can see who are doing well, and that attracts them to the sport. And uh, as a result, the, the popularity of the sport continues to build and snowball. So, um, you know, where that came from, that's, uh, you know, maybe like a little bit of a chicken and egg story there. But uh, yeah. if, if you want to take it all the way back, um, the very first Olympics that had uh, Japanese athletes in it, the Stockholm Olympics, um, there were two Japanese athletes. One was a 100 meter sprinter. The other one was a marathoner. And um, the uh, when they came back to Japan, uh, the athlete who had run the marathon there was uh, his name was uh, Shiso Kanaguri and or Kanakuri. Sorry. And he was uh, very active in, uh, he was really taken with the, uh, the Olympic ideal and the, the idea of people of all different countries coming together, um, yet that having been a relatively closed period in Japanese history. And so he was very active in trying to uh, develop the sport within Japan, develop distance running. And so he conceived of a lot of things that, uh, including the, the concept of, he was involved with um, establishing the concept of the Ekiden, the road relay, and uh, that kind of laid the groundwork for the future development that, you know, a few decades ago, as I said, when, once the TV broadcast really took off, um, just the snowball, uh, the popularity of um, the whole thing really uh, just snowballed and developed. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the, it's the Hakone Ekiden, which is the biggest? Hakone, yeah. Hakone. Yeah, the Hakone, yeah, the Hakone Ekiden. Um, that was uh, Kanakuri's, uh, one of his uh, things that he was uh, instrumental in launching. Um, what it is, is a two-day university men's road relay championship. Um, it's for universities from the greater Tokyo area. Um, it's called the Kanto region, which is kind of the greater Tokyo metropolitan district and surrounding areas. And uh, over the course of two days, uh, there are about 20 university teams with 10 runners each. Um, each person runs about a half marathon in distance. It's like half marathon plus or minus two kilometers. Uh, the first day they run from central Tokyo up to a mountain town in the foothills of Mount Fuji called uh, Hakone. And the second day they run back from Hakone to central Tokyo. And uh, that's been going for um, 
close to 100 years now. And um, the it's if you've never seen it, it's really hard to express the popularity of it. Uh, it's you know January 2nd and 3rd every year, and it's that's what people do in Japan do is they sit down and they watch university guys run for you know six hours a day for two days in a row um and uh it's incredibly exciting it's just if you haven't seen it it's hard to understand how good it is but uh just the level of the racing is exciting the level of the tv broadcast is unbelievable um the history of it the scale of it um everything is just uh, spectacular and uh, that's one of the biggest driving forces kind of in where uh, all of these good especially Japanese men are coming from is they have this extremely popular high level event in university that uh, draws in huge crowds. And uh, the, when they're young, they see that on TV and they say, like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Hakone runner. And so they go to the right high school to get into the right university so that they would have a chance of competing on the team in this event. And um, because they're spending their university years focusing on the half marathon distance, um, you know, they, the kinds of times that they're developed that they're running these days, you know, are, are typically around 61 minutes. The top guys will break 61 minutes in the half marathon these days, college students. And then from there, they have kind of the foundation to make a quick step up to the marathon. And you start seeing guys, you know, in their like early mid twenties running, uh, you know, very good marathon times. Um, you know, current Japanese national record is uh, 205, 29. Uh, and there are multiple guys who've run 206, 207 uh, in recent years, you know, even prior to uh, the current, uh, the current incarnation of uh, the Nike shoes. And so, um, <laughs> so we do, we do have uh, this kind of like very high level, very popular and very exciting uh, university development system, which is expressed in the Hakone Ekiden. And um, Kanaguri, the, uh, the original Olympic marathoner, that was kind of his idea was that uh, if they have this event, that it would help to uh, develop people who would be, uh, Japan's next generation of Olympic marathoners. And so like, here we are like about a hundred years later and uh, it's all kind of worked out that they've got a, you know, very, very good marathon team for what will hopefully be the uh, Tokyo Olympics this summer. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I found it really interesting that I, so from what I understand, essentially every single athlete in Hakone this year was wearing next percents and seven. Not, well, out... not every, not every single one, but pretty close. Yeah. Okay, and e even though some of the teams are sponsored by other brands, there's you yep. know, a few big yep. Japanese running brands that I'm sure are sponsoring some of these teams. But mm -hmm. seven out of ten, the ten segment records fell mm -hmm. this year. Um, I believe that's true. I would have to look it up, but I believe that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the numbers, like one of the times that I read, was like a guy went through in. A 58 35 mar half marathon or something that's right is... yeah the the third stage i believe it was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah incredible so do, do you so most of these top university athletes are then mm -hmm. feeding through into the corporate system which is another thing that's quite unique in japan yeah i can say a little bit about the corporate team system um so yeah, you know, that the, the high school and university development system is at a very high level here um, and, uh, you know, very well funded and well respected and uh, very popular. And then on top of that, Japan has a corporate running team system, which, um, you know, you might you might look at as a pro sports league. Um, it's nominally uh, non-professional. They're considered um, company workers. Uh, as opposed to professional athletes, but it functions much like a pro um, sports. So what we have 
here. There are different corporations, you know, Toyota, Honda, um, not just car companies, uh, you know, makeup manufacturers, um, all kinds of different companies. Um, the post office has a team, the national rail has a team and, uh, they have, they're, they're sponsoring teams of, you know, say like 10, 15 runners each. And, um, the runners receive a regular salary. Uh, they're employed by the company and uh, they represent the company. And uh, along with the regular salary, they'll have performance bonuses and such like uh, such things in relation to how the team does in designated performances, as well as how the athlete does um, in terms of uh, times or placing in particular races. Um, the main focus of the year for uh, for both men and women would be the national championships, Ekiden. Um, for women, that's uh, in November, late November, and for men, it's January 1st. And so they have a road relay where the team will compete for the national title in that, and that's the runner's main purpose is to represent the team in that event, the national championships, Ekiden. And then, um, so so then you on the uh, on the men's side, if you take that back to the university guys, so like the top high school guys will get recruited by the schools that are going to compete at Hakone, the universities that will compete at Hakone. And then the top guys from that will get recruited by corporate teams to compete in, uh, in the corporate leagues. And then some percentage of those guys will become marathoners. And uh, some percentage of those guys will become the really good marathoners who, uh, whose names you might see overseas. Um, on the women's side, uh, there is, um, you know, high school and university, uh, running as well. Um, there's nothing quite as big as Hakone for women. Um, there is, uh, you know, there are televised national championships, Ekidens for women. Um, there's one that's uh, in late December, the Mount Fuji Women's Ekiden, which is kind of a national championships uh, Ekiden on the, in the foothills of Mount Fuji, which is pretty cool, but uh, not quite the same level of popularity. So you do see more women going straight from high school into the corporate leagues um, than you would for men, just because Hakone is such a big draw that uh, most guys would go to university. And then, okay. uh, yeah, and then beyond that, they in the corporate leagues, they have these teams and uh, they, they compete, um, kind of focusing the whole year on those uh, national championships road relays. Mm, okay. And what kind of numbers are we looking at here? Like, how do you know how many teams there are and how many athletes there are running in this capacity? Um, it's always fluctuating, the number of teams. You know, there's, there's always going to be one or two teams that disband or one or two new teams per year. But um, I think like ballpark, I would probably say there's like, 40, 50 on the men's side and uh, slightly less on the women's side or slightly fewer on the women's side. Um, and then uh, the team size varies quite a bit, but, uh, you know, the minimum number uh, would be what they need for uh, for completing the Ekiden. So, um, you know, they wouldn't, I think like the very smallest teams might have like six to eight people, depending on whether it's a men or women's team. But uh, most teams would be more like in the range of, say, 10 to 15 people. Okay. Wow. And yeah, um, each one of each one of them would be receiving a salary from the company and like bonuses. As I said, um, they usually have a team dormitory. Um, there's a coaching staff. They have like you know complete medical. Um, they have uh, you know transportation around to races. Um, they get they have a budget to handle overseas altitude training and things like that. So it's uh, you know extremely well funded compared to just about any other country. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you have any idea what kind of base rate those athletes would be starting on? Um, it really depends on the uh, the level of the athlete and uh, you know the the financial uh, situation of the team. You know, not all teams are equal. There's you know very top level teams and then lower level teams. But um, you can assume that like uh, the the 
bigger name Japanese athletes who would be getting signed to the bigger teams or making you know a six figure base. Mm, wow. Yeah. So it's it's quite good. Yeah. And are, are these athletes generally do they have any responsibilities within the company other than running? Yeah. Um, that's um, when I said that they're nominally um, you know semi pro or amateur teams. Um, I think maybe originally back in the day and still very much the the concept for most teams is that uh, they're not actually a running team. They're company workers who are competing on the company track club and representing the company. And, uh, you know, that's that's more true or less true depending on the team. But uh, generally speaking, they would be doing some kind of work for uh, for the company, whether that's like an office job or in the case of some of like the more industrial teams, they might be going and working in the factories and such. But uh, for the most part, they get pretty easy work and um, it's not, uh, you know, working eight hours a day. They might they'll have like a morning training session maybe go in, um, you know, work for two or three hours. And then after lunch, they have the, uh, an afternoon training session, that kind of thing. So, you know, part-time I would say. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, but you know, in terms something... of like, in, in terms of like what they do, it varies a lot. Um, like I know one guy, I won't say the, I won't mention the team. It's in a fairly large industrial company, but his job is filing company employees, taxi receipts. Hmm. Okay. So he just has a desk in the office and he goes in for two or three hours a day and files taxi receipts. And Unfortunately, Brett's internet connection cuts out for the next 20 seconds or so. But what Brett's explaining here is that the athletes that are racing for these corporate teams and then are hired by them also tend to spend some time in the office during the week doing smaller tasks, staying engaged and involved with the business. Tate now segues into talking with Brett more about training. I've heard, you know, crazy reports of mileage that some of these corporate teams are doing, you know, like averaging over well over 600 miles a month. Do mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, is, is that still the case where Japanese athletes are generally training with a really high mileage? Um, yeah, I would say if you want to generalize, I would say that's true. Um, that's, uh, you know, there's a wealth of different, uh, training ideas and training techniques here, you know, especially these days when there are a lot, uh, a lot more younger coaches kind of getting into positions of authority. Um, you know, some of the, the training techniques might be, or training uh, philosophies might be uh, a little bit more modern, but um, if you want to generalize, I would say high mileage is definitely a characteristic. Mm, okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, I read in another interview that you did, mm-hmm. you spoke about Shitara coming uh-huh. on TV after the Tokyo Marathon with his coach. Uh-huh. And... Um, that he said he never runs more than 30k yeah Uh, that um that's changed a little bit uh prior to his win at uh at gold coast last year um he said that uh you know he had kind of identified the lack of stamina as one of the areas he needed to work on so he had been doing like the regular 30k training run and then uh, adding on a, a harder 5k at uh, after the 30k so basically doing a 35k run with a hard last 5k and uh he felt like that was uh part of the success that he had with um with winning on the gold coast last year um so yeah that the, the thing about the 30k training runs i think that was true up to a point but uh he's progressed past that at this point is my understanding okay and in your view what are what are some of the main differences in training in the approach to training and races between japanese and Japanese athletes and their Western counterparts? Um, I, again, like I think uh, if 
I think uh, high mileage would be one uh, one very characteristic difference, um, especially starting from a younger age. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, like the university guys here focus on half marathons, um, and you know, up to 10k. You know, 10k is kind of viewed as like a schoolboy distance here. Um, so that would be one aspect. Um, it's in terms of like the the structure of things, it's a lot more top down here, um, generally speaking. Um, again, that might be changing as as things modernize, but um, the kind of the coach athlete relationship um, is very much top down in most situations here. Uh, you know, it's I think if you were to compare it to the states where um, you know maybe a coach is working for an athlete uh, in a way, um, here it's you know because um, a coach is coaching the team and the athlete is hired to be part of the team. Uh, the athlete is very much under the coach and has to do what the coach says. And so in a lot of situations, I think there's maybe less um, back and forth, less feedback, less interaction, and more um, doing what your coach tells you to do. Um, so like that kind of uh, that kind of approach or that kind of mentality might be a little bit different. Mm, um, okay. in terms of in terms of racing, um, I think the calendar here is uh, is quite a bit busier than most other places. Um, there's no real off season here. Um, so like the academic and fiscal year starts April 1st and basically you're right into uh, track season. And then um, in the summer, everybody goes up to Hokkaido and does summer mileage training. Uh, in the fall, it's Ekiden season. And then um, past Ekiden season, once you get into the new year, uh, kind of January through March is just a free for all season. You know, that's when most people would do their, uh, their main marathon for the year um, or, you know, half marathon cross country if there's a world cross that year um and then uh basically april 1st rolls around and you're right, right back into it so there's no real off season and people t do tend to train and, and race year round um with maybe less of uh kind of like off, like, like downtime and then building up towards one particular uh, race than type of approach that you might see elsewhere mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we spent some time with a university squad, and mm -hmm. when I asked if they take a, an extended period of downtime through the year, mm -hmm. it was sort of laughed at. Yeah. Um, yeah, do, yeah. You, do you think this kind of really high mileage from an early age and little time off sees mm -hmm. an increase in injuries in athletes over there? Um, it, it did up to a point. Uh, I mean, I think... Um, people are like more careful or more knowledgeable about uh, the types of like cross training or more preventative measures you might take. And, you know, some of the training methods have modernized where um, it's not necessarily just going out and running loads and loads of mileage like it might've been back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think because there are so many people here and it's such a big system to a little bit, it's, a, it's maybe more of a numbers game where, um, you know, like I was saying before, there's, you know, all of these high school guys and then some percentage of that will go on to university to the good university team. Some percentage of them will go on to the top corporate team. Some percentage of them will go on. And so there is like margin there for people who get, uh, get injured. Um, so it's, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would say survival of the fittest, but, um, like maybe a little bit less focused on the uh, success of the individual athlete, as opposed mm -hmm. to, um, like a coach, who has to produce a team of say 10 guys or 10 women who are going to perform in an Ekiden, you know, instead of developing like each person individually might be looking at it more in terms of the overall numbers and then being able to produce 10 people out of a larger pool. And so if some percent of those people are getting injured, it's less of an issue. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I'm not sure if that's coming across in a negative way, but uh, yeah, I think like the, the, the way of thinking in that regard might be, might be a little bit different.
Okay, sure. And are there anything, is there anything that you see as a big downfall within the Japanese running infrastructure and their system over there? Um, I think... Um, or things that could be improved upon? Uh, I think I have to be kind of careful of how I phrase that, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, I think the, uh, the the top-down aspect of it can be kind of limiting, and um, that's one of the the things that's kind of held it back, held Japan back um, until like at least fairly recently. Um, just that you know there is deference to elders, and uh, and the the power structure is from the top coming down, and so. Um, sometimes it can be difficult to understand who the coach really is because there's somebody whose position is like head coach, but there's also somebody who's like executive head coach or like executive head coach emeritus. And, you know, basically like previous, previous generations of people who are like still affiliated with the team. And so if you're kind of like a young innovative coach, it can be, your hands can be kind of tied in terms of what approaches you want to take with the athlete because there's your predecessor is still involved there and is going to say, well, this is the way we did it. So this is the way you're going to do it too. And you can't say no to that. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, um, some people are maybe kind of straightjacketed in terms of what they want to do and that things are kind of restrictive and uh, in, in that way. And um, you know, people might be limited to uh, having to do things a certain way when they want, even if they want to do something different. So, I think that the corporate team system has, Lots of advantages. There's lots of great things about it, but um, it does have uh, what seem kind of like unnecessary restrictions, just kind of as a product of, you know, having people in a senior position whose thinking was maybe from a different time and uh, not necessarily in line with kind of the needs of the modern era, and that the people below them, you know, can't just tell them to, you know, <laughs> go away. Uh, can't just tell them to go away. Yeah. They have to, you know, if some if they say, you know, if an older guy says you have to do it this way, then in most cases, that's what you have to do. So I think that's what I would say is probably one of the biggest uh, biggest shortcomings. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, one final question that I'd love to delve into is I'd love for you to give listeners a little rundown on the Marathon Grand Championship structure and how the selection process occurred for the hopefully upcoming Olympics. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, the uh, the Marathon Grand Championship, the MGC, uh, was the uh, Olympic trials race that Japan had last September. And kind of up to this point in the past, um, Japan has generally had uh, kind of like a black box approach to its uh, its national team selection, where they have a traditional circuit of um, domestic marathons, you know, the ones you've probably heard of, like Fukuoka and Tokyo and Lake Biwa for men and uh, Saitama. Osaka and uh, Nagoya for women and one or two other and in the past they've always the, the federation has always just set uh, standards that if the uh, top Japanese athletes in those races cleared the standards their names would kind of go into a hat and uh, the federation would then in March choose the team that uh, they felt best uh, would best represent Japan and um, you know those those choices were often kind of controversial and uh, with the 2015 um, Beijing World Championships, there was a lot of controversy controversy about the women's team selection, where um, the uh, the winner of one of the actual straight up winner of one of the uh, selection races was left off the team in favor of the second place Japanese woman in one of the other races, whose coach happened to be one of the people on the selection committee. 
And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you, you, you can call that what you like. Um, you know, people here are a little bit less confrontational about things, but um, the, the media was pretty upset about that. And uh, I think the Federation uh, felt like they had to go for something a bit more transparent. Um, they wanted to go for a more transparent approach just because of a lot of the, the blowback from that. And then with the Tokyo Olympics coming, uh, they decided to try to make uh, a very clear and fair uh, selection system that would produce the best game possible. So they looked kind of at, at the American system, the U.S. Uh, Olympic trials in the marathon, where they have a single race. If you want to be on the Olympic team, you have to run that race. You have to finish in the top three to make the team. If you're fourth place or you're the alternate. And like, that's that. That's b basically the American approach in a nutshell. And so Japan wanted to do something like that. And they created this race called the MGC race, uh, the Marathon Grand Championship race. So they had about a two-year qualification period for that where um, they had very high standards uh, to get into that. The qualifying times were um, 208.30, I believe, for men and 224.00 for women um, on any IAF, uh, or I should say World Athletics now, um, uh, record-eligible course, or two races within the two-year qualifying period, um, averaging 211 for men or 228 for women. Um, those are the basic standards. And then those earlier races that I mentioned, the existing, the big Japanese uh, domestic races like Fukuoka or Nagoya, um, they had slightly easier standards so that Japanese people, Japanese athletes would still want to run those races and kind of favor running those races because they would have an easier time getting into the standard, uh, getting into the, uh, the trials. So um, basically after two years with these kind of high standards, they had uh, about, I believe it was 35, I want to say men, it might be slightly higher, but about 35 men and 15 women qualified for the trials race. Um, not all of them actually started, but uh, pretty close to that. And then in the actual trials race, um, they, uh, as I said, the American approach was top three and you're on the team. Um, Japan wanted to do that, but the problem was that because they had the trials in September to try to replicate the kind of summer uh, temperatures that they would experience at the actual Olympics, um, that was before the last winter series of those big domestic Japanese marathons. And so that would create this situation where these big races that have TV broadcasts and were very popular, like again, like Fukuoka or Tokyo or Nagoya, would be irrelevant to the Olympic selection process in the season right before the Olympics. And that would be really bad for the ratings and that would be bad for the sponsors and bad for everybody. So what they did with the MGC race, the trials race, was that they said the top two finishers will be on the Olympic team for sure. The third place finisher would be provisionally on the team, but there would be kind of a wild card time that if anybody during that last winter season broke that time, they could steal the third spot on the team. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was the wild card time, was that if they broke the national record they get on there? Uh, not explicitly. What it was was um, they had to run faster than the fastest time anybody had run during the two-year qualification period. And then just this past winter season, um, after the Olympic trials last September, um, this past winter season, if any man ran faster than 205.50, he could replace Osako on the Olympic team. If any woman ran under 222.23, she could replace the third placer at the Olympic trials, who was Rei Ohara. And then um, what we saw... Uh, in Osaka in January was uh, Miski Matsuda, who had the fastest time, broke her own time. So she ran 221.47 for the win in Osaka. And so she moved into the third spot on the team. 
And then in Tokyo, uh, Osako broke his own record. Uh, he ran 205.29. So he basically cemented his position on the team. And then um, in Nagoya, a week after Tokyo, uh, another woman, Mao Ichiyama, ran 220.29. So she beat the time that um, Matsuda had run in Osaka in January and replaced Matsuda in the third spot on the team. So Matsuda had been fourth at the trials. Because of her Osaka performance, she moved into third. And then Ichiyama knocked her off the team and took over the third place. So um, it, it, it might sound a little bit confusing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it might have taken away a little bit from, you know, the simplicity and the fairness of the trials race itself. But uh, it definitely added a lot of excitement to, uh, to the, winter series, the, the winter series here. Uh, the, the whole season, uh, you know, people were really excited about how things were going to go in the races and whether anybody could get those times. And uh, yeah, it just it generated a lot of buzz. That was a great thing um, in terms of uh, you know increasing excitement about the actual Olympics. Yeah, I mean, we went to the press conference prior to the Tokyo Marathon, and when they had Shitara, Inoue, and Osako all out there, mm-hmm. um, you you could just tell there was a different vibe, given that the third place was up for grabs. And I think the system that they came up with is really cool, but it. It especially works well in Japan, given that there's such depth and so many guys within, you know, a, sh- a close, zo- um, you know, a limited yeah. amount of time. Other yeah. countries, it wouldn't really work, but Japan, it made it very dramatic and very exciting. Yeah, no, uh, I think, um, yeah, that's 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 uh, that's well said. Um, you know, it it was uh, it wasn't an arbitrary system. There was it was. Uh, put that that stealing the third spot on the team thing was uh, was set up because of like kind of the demands of the Japanese market and because of the uh, yeah the depth and quality and the fact that that was actually feasible and so it wouldn't necessarily be something that would be applicable anywhere else but it was definitely like the right solution to uh, the unique features or problems of uh, of the situation here. Mm. Okay, and. In the lead up to the Tokyo Olympics, has mm-hmm. there been any other major change that you've picked up on or that's been spoken about in Japanese running? Um, in what regard? Uh, I don't know. Are they changing the approach to certain things? For example, are more guys being coached for specifically marathon rather than Ekiden, which is more of a half marathon distance? Um, yeah, that's, uh, I think over the, the, the last few years, uh, you know, kind of with the, the qualifying period for the, uh, for the MGC race be- beginning in, um, August, 2017, um, a lot of, uh, yeah, I would say a lot of corporate teams did put more resources into trying to get somebody on the Olympic team in the marathon. And so, uh, yeah, maybe more teams shifted uh, focus or resources away from um, the national championship Ekiden specifically to um, trying to uh, reinforce the marathoners so they would have somebody represent them on, on the national team um, in the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, yeah, I would say that that was definitely the case. Um, you know, just prior to that, there was a lot of progress in uh, on the track here. There were some really good uh, 5,000, 10,000 meter times. Um, back around, I want to say like 2015, 16, there were like national records, uh, by several different athletes. And, uh, that has mostly dried up because all of those guys went to the marathon because that's the prestige event here. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's pretty thin over 5,000 and 10,000 meters, uh, these days, just because all of the talent there, uh, was really focused on trying to get into the marathon. So 
um, we'll see what happens now that the marathon is all set um, with uh, some of the other top people trying to go backwards now and go towards the uh, the 10,000. Um, mm. But uh, there was definitely a shift of focus towards the marathon for sure. Yeah, and while we were there, we we heard a lot about you know, Ekaden and the marathon distances. Mm-hmm. What's the situation like for middle distance in Japan? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the situation with sprinting. No. No, really? Um, yeah, Japanese, uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry uh, that for the most part I'm speaking in the context of talking about Japanese men, um, but just because like Hakone was a big part of the conversation. Um, likewise, in sprinting, uh, Japanese men have really uh, come up a lot in the 100 meters and especially the 4x100. They've had like uh, global medals uh, several times over the last decade or so. And um, that's kind of one of the other big events in Japan right now is in sprinting. But uh, so there's a lot of success in sprinting, a lot of success in the marathon and, uh, you know, to some degree, maybe uh, 5,000, 10,000. But middle distance has always been kind of the, the weak link here. Um there's definitely, uh, I think you said you spent time at Tokai University, is that right? Yes, we did. Yeah, um, that's, I think the head coach there, um, Coach Morozumi, has uh, over the last four or five years, maybe, um, put a lot of, uh, maybe not quite that long, but let's say about four years, has uh, put a lot of focus into uh, middle distance for his guys. Um, so he's had uh, a couple of people, both students and recent uh, graduates, breaking, uh, you know, like the national um, indoor mile record or national indoor 1500 record in that. Um, so trying to develop the, the, the middle distance, uh, especially the 15, but um, it is traditionally uh, kind of a weak area in Japan. Um, in terms of reasons why, um, again, I think it's the long distance is really um, where the prestige is. And so uh, the people who might be, you know, like 1500 meter specialists, are going to be kind of pushed towards um, doing longer things at a relatively young age. And, you know, if they're at a corporate team, um, you know, there are corporate teams that support sprints or maybe middle distance. But if you're a middle distance guy, the coach is going to want you to run in the Ekiden. And that means you're going to have to focus on, you know, at the very least, like eight kilometers. And uh, so just there's not the same kind of like focused infrastructure in place to support middle distance specifically. Okay. You know, it's kind oh. of interesting if you take it back to the, the very first Japanese Olympic team. Um, they had two guys. One of them was a 100-meter sprinter. The other guy was a marathoner. And if you take it, you kind of extrapolate that forward, nothing's really changed there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so there, was that, there was that gap there from the beginning, and it's, like, it's, it's still kind of there. Yeah. Yeah. But, Started um, right back at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think right now it's probably the best it's been for Japanese middle distance where they have um, – I'm not sure what the current number is, but like around about a half dozen guys going under 340 and that, and uh, that's very good by Japanese standards. Uh, so um, it's not quite what it might be elsewhere, but uh, it's, it's an area that's ripe for improvement for sure. Mm. Okay. And as it stands, do you mm-hmm. expect to see Tokyo going ahead at the moment? Uh, that's a hard question. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> I mean... The yeah, situation is changing so quickly that it's hard to hard to make an accurate guess. Yeah, um, it. Uh, I guess I could see it going either way. Um, you know, there's there's like arguments to be made either way, but uh, just as of today's news, uh, looking at the, at the the, the general situation, um, not so much in Japan but elsewhere, um, it would be pretty hard to see it uh, going ahead as originally envisioned. Um, mm. We shall see. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Brett, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and fill us in on everything about Japanese running. I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more that we could have delved into, and we'll save that for another time, hopefully. Yeah, I yeah, really time, appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure.